Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. I do have the passage uh, printed for you on your outline in your bulletin. And hopefully by now uh, we have all become very familiar with with Paul's purpose in writing Galatians. Uh, if you were jarred out of your sleep at 3 a.m. and asked why Paul wrote Galatians, I would be very disappointed if you were not able to respond that he was writing to refute the idea that anyone could be made right with God by his or her good works or something like that. At 3 a.m., if you got that call, I know you would know the purpose for which Paul wrote this letter. Only by faith in Christ, my dear brothers and sisters, only by faith in Christ, our righteous substitute and his atoning sufficient death for us, only by faith in him can we be made made right with God. There is no other way. And Paul has to continue to remind his readers of this because I would venture a guess that as we hear the gospel afresh each Sunday, and hopefully more than that as we discuss it and read it and and explore it, but I would venture a guess that as we hear it on Sunday, it could be Monday or Tuesday already, we're trying to live by works. We think God loves us more because we did this or we did that, or He doesn't love us as much because we failed to do this or that, and we forget the gospel. So, here we come to a very difficult portion of the letter. Several commentators say this These ten verses are the most difficult to understand in the New Testament. And I think this is true for modern readers for two reasons. As we come to this allegory, it's really an an actual historical account that occurred that Paul uses as an allegory to teach, again, this reality that we cannot be made right with God by our works. Uh, But it's difficult for us as modern readers, I think, for two reasons. First, we're just a little bit disconnected to the culture of Abraham's day. Uh, the idea of how he took a second woman to have a child with and this idea of one child born to slavery, one child uh, to freedom. It's just difficult, a bit foreign for us. And maybe we just don't study the historical portions in detail. I mean, we learn them as Bible stories and we teach them to our kids in general. But how many of you, last time you had family devotions, really got into explaining your kids, Hagar and Sarah, and how they worked out in Abraham's life? Uh, so we, we sometimes shy away from it because of its cultural trappings, but there's another reason. I think partly we have grown to accept the idea that there is a different faith in the Old Testament, a different set of rules, you might say. It's, it's all about law, and the New Testament's all about gospel. And there's no doubt there's, there's a comparison that goes on. And the law has the purpose of showing us, really, eventually, how works can't save us because we can't keep those works, right? Uh, but sometimes we have so dichotomized the Bible, we've made the Old Testament so foreign, uh, that we don't focus on the fact that the same gospel message is true for the Old Testament saints as it is for us. The problem is that that message continually gets attacked and distorted by the time Paul's writing to the Jews. They're promoting a view of the law that is meritorious, that you have to keep the law, be under the law, and that you've got to keep it in order to be right with God. And that's really what he's addressing. It's the misapplication of what was given in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was meant to progress towards Christ, the fulfillment. We weren't supposed to stay under that administration. But at the same time, certainly Jesus upholds the the ethics of the law. 
but he does so from the position of people who have been redeemed and adopted sons and daughters. Now we respond with obedience that's outlined for us in his word from beginning to end. But instead we divide the Old Testament, maybe we're disconnected a bit, and that's why when we come to a passage like this, we kind of doze off while we're reading it or, or just kind of numbly go through it till we get to chapter 5 of Galatians. So I just want to warn us not to do that and to dig into these verses as difficult as they are and do our best to see how this continues to bolster Paul's point. So please now hear God's word, Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women who these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let us pray. Father, it must be confessed that this is a difficult passage. It must also be confessed that all too often we possess a deep-seated pride that believes we could somehow add something to the work of Christ by our own supposed good works. Father, help us to trust not in our ability to obey, but rather to trust wholly and fully the only one who did actually obey, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in turn, as a result of Christ in us, help us to praise your name by reflecting your righteousness. Father, you have set us free. We do not want to trust in anything but Christ. Free us again from the bondage of trusting in our performance to be right with you. And may the Lord Jesus Christ receive all the glory because he alone deserves it. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this passage, as you probably could tell, as I read it, is one of the more challenging passages in the New Testament. But if we continue in this exposition, remembering the overall argument of Paul, he's essentially arguing with a rabbinic argument, one that would have been understandable to the Jewish mind especially. Eight times in Galatians, he refers back to Abraham. This is something that the Jews would have boasted of frequently, their ethnicity, their, their, the lineage that they have. And so he attacks this in many ways, and really he goes for it all with this particular interpretation of a historical account that, that was near and dear to those Jewish people who were there in the midst of them. Now remember what has happened in Galatia. You have a church of Gentiles, people without Jewish background, coming to faith in Christ. The church grows, churches are planted, 
They're growing in this gospel message, learning Christ's teaching, learning the freedom of the gospel. And Jewish professing believers come from Jerusalem. They see the Gentiles professing faith in Christ. And they, they don't say, stop believing in Jesus. They simply say, in addition to Christ, you must also have some of these traditional marks of Judaism. After all, we're the ancient religion. We gave the Christ. Uh, we're this stable movement that has withstood thousands of years. And so follow these things and you will be right with God or you'll be more right with God, maybe. And so they distort the message and it's no longer the gospel itself. People start trusting in the stuff they do plus Christ. So Paul uses an historical argument that would have cut immediately to the chase, especially as it related to the pride that the Jews had. And maybe some in the midst of them who were tempted to go the route of adding certain cultural trappings to their life so that they might be right with God. Paul uses a recognized historical account to illustrate how we are made right with God, not by works, that is in the flesh, but by faith, which is by the Spirit. Now look at verse 21 as we see Paul's warning in the form of a simple question. This really sets, sets us up to understand the rest of the passage. Paul says, tell me. Now remember, what comes right before this? We're children of the living God. We're adopted. We're redeemed by Christ. Verse 21, tell me. You who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? In other words, you who have heard this message I've given. Now, there are some in your midst that still want to be Jewish. You want all that Jewish pageantry. You want it because it's fashionable. These guys seem really smart. They seem to know what they're talking about. They're real stable. And here you are, a Gentile. Maybe you worshipped a little wooden idol before, and now you're a Christian, and you, you feel like you lack the background. You, you lack the depth that these Jew, Judaizers have, and you want some of that. And so you want to put up on you this Jewish stuff. You think that will really make you right with God? Tell me. You desire to be under the law, to put yourself under these rules. Do you not listen to the law? Do you even know what it all says? Now, realize that the Judaizers were not faithful believers in the gospel of Abraham. Abraham believed and it was counted unto him as righteousness. It was by faith that Abraham was saved. The gospel is preached even through Moses. And what happens is, is when you have this message of God's grace that comes to fruition right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden as Jesus or God speaks of Jesus as coming to undo the work of the serpent, you have God graciously working to redeem. And in the process, he gives covenants. And the old covenant was this covenant that was primarily driven by their needing to respond to their covenant God in faith, but also they had to obey. When they didn't obey, they realized all the more they needed their God. That was the purpose of the law. It was hard. But for these, it came to be distorted and misapplied, and it was utterly a covenant of works, just like the covenant of works before with, Abraham, with, with Adam and Eve. And they fell into believing they could keep the covenant of works by keeping the law. So we have this warning. You want to be under the law. Do not listen to the law. Now, let's just say before we look at this passage, this is a good question for us today on many levels. I don't know your backgrounds, but I know they're diverse. We all come with some amount of baggage based on what we've heard. We live in a country where it's wonderful that we have freedom of expression and we can we have all sorts of churches. But it also can create a difficulty that we have all these swirling ideas and things that contribute to who we are and how we listen to things now. And in general, we're considered to be part of the evangelical church, our denomination, our church. 
Basically, that just means that we believe that the Bible is God's word and that Christ is the only way of salvation. Unfortunately, that's become so simple and distorted, it's difficult to even know how helpful the term is anymore. And the doctrinal weakness of the evangelical church has really caused many of our young people especially to grow up really ill-equipped biblically. And so the doctrinal and biblical weakness of the evangelical church has really taken us out of any kind of uh, transforming role in the culture. Uh, this push to be relevant, ironically, has actually caused us to become more and more irrelevant as we no longer even look like the church that God ordained, but rather some club that's trying to be like everything else out there, failing miserably to really see us have the impact of salt and light that we're supposed to have. Now, accompanying this doctrinal anemia in the evangelical church is the departure uh, from it to other faiths. You see this happen more and more. I've recently noticed a good number of people raised in evangelical homes and churches convert to Roman Catholicism or to Eastern Orthodoxy. There seems to be some kind of draw to the formalism, the seeming ancient status of these traditions against the backdrop of the wishy-washy, loosey-goosey, seeker-driven, historically ignorant, non-Trinitarian, man-focused. I wonder why. But sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. And that's what we see happening. But you can see why. They think something else has transcendence. It has stability. It's monolithic. It's been around a while. And what I've been part of doesn't even know what its identity is. But I would say to those folks, tell me, you desire to be under Rome. Do you not listen to the Pope? You know what he says? Just as Paul says to the Judaizers, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, before I go too far that direction and before we continue on, remember that this is not a problem that we have in transferring from evangelicalism into Romanism. This is also a problem we have within ourselves. I remember I was raised Roman Catholic, as you know, and so I grew up with a reverence for God, no doubt. No complaints whatsoever about that component of it. But when I came to faith in Christ, I realized that the, the misapplied authority put on the church was leading many astray, and including myself, trusting in the wrong things. And so I was drawn to this notion that the Bible is the authority. And it's from the Bible that we gain our rules for faith and life, so to speak. And, and it was liberating. The gospel was clear to me. It was faith in Christ alone. And, and I looked for a body that believed in the Bible as its authority, not the Pope or something else. And I remember going to a church of, of wonderful people to this day I love. And I remember sitting in different uh, gatherings and this yeah, the Bible opened to me. And I was reading the Bible in a way I'd never read before. And this authority coming through to me. And now I can direct my life to something that's, that's solid. Not just people making up things and contradicting each other. Here it is. It's the Bible. And I remember going to the church one day and they had a big dinner there and and I remember sitting at the dinner and I remember inviting dad and, so, and I thought maybe mom came. No, it was just, just, I think it was just for the men of the church and we were there. And I remember sitting around and, and they're eating and drinking. And we're having a good old time. And, and uh, my dad looked around and he said, where's the beer? You can hear a pin drop. And I'm thinking, I didn't think there was any big deal either. I only found out later that Christians shouldn't drink beer. And I thought, well, that make, where is that in the Bible? I mean, that, this is our authority now. And that, along with ten other things that Christians shouldn't do, could be found nowhere in the Bible, but the Bible was their authority. Tell me, you desire to be under these weird fundamentalist rules? Do you not listen to that legalism? 
So it's not just one way. It goes our direction too. Those who say the Bible is our authority. Recognize what any form of legalism does. It gives us, it pushes us towards trusting in us, in our keeping of something, and not in Christ. And it's a diversion that leads people all the way to hell. Paul warns in a form of a question, and then he gives a historical account. Let's dig into this account that he gives, that he uses. It says in verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. So he recounts a story that would have been very, very common to any listener, including a Gentile listener. They were aware of the story of Abraham and the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. One son born to Hagar, the slave woman, and one to Sarah, the free woman. Uh, so he goes into this account, all the listeners would have known, but the Jews especially would have been, been listening well. Verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Uh, you know the story yourselves. Abraham was promised that he would be made a great nation, that God through Abraham would bring a people to himself. The way he would work out his plan, his gracious plan of redemption, would be through, at least at the beginning point, through this nation that would come from Abraham. And he was promised this in his later years. And so, as time went on, Abraham's waiting for this child to come, and this child doesn't come. And he grows impatient. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't have been impatient either. His wife was pushing 90, and he didn't have the child yet. So it's easy for me to say he's impatient. I mean, I'm impatient when I don't get something like the next day in the mail. But 90 years old, and, or just before this time anyways, he decides that, okay, I'm going to do this. And the legal way it could be done in that culture was to take the handmaiden, if your wife was barren, and, and have a child through her. And that's what he does. He forces the issue of God's promise. He, he takes it in his own hands, so to speak, and impregnates Hagar, and they have a child named Ishmael. Born not of Sarah, the free woman, but the slave woman, Hagar, of the flesh. Of his promotion, not of God's initiative. Well, the son of the free woman was born through promise. After Ishmael's born, then Sarah conceives and has Isaac. Two sons, both Abrahams, two different mothers, which meant that they inherited two different legal standings. Ishmael and Isaac essentially are used now by Paul to demonstrate Two different approaches to God. Works against grace. Flesh against the spirit. Self-reliance against divine dependence. This is the picture that Paul paints through these lives that are represented in the book of Genesis. One was a slave, the other was free. Paul Ascribes to this an an allegorical interpretation, starting at verse 24. Look what he says. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Okay, I just want to give a word of caution whenever we read Scripture. We have to be careful allegorizing portions of Scripture, especially an historical narrative like this. In fact, I would say the safest rule of thumb is not to allegorize unless Scripture states something can be seen in such a way. It would be dangerous to take an historical account and just give it an allegorical meaning. Here, though, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking as a prophet, apostle of God, is able to say and use this passage in such a way, now this 
may be interpreted allegorically, he says. And he goes into the story of Ishmael and Isaac teaching us about the gospel of God's free grace. And this would have been a shocking allegory to use with Jewish listeners. Let's follow with what he says, starting in verse 24 again. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. That's works. In other words, uh, here they are after Christ had come, had died his death on the cross, given his commission. And if people want to stay in this Sinaitic covenant, they are staying in works and not in Christ's work. So that's one covenant, works. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's where the commandments were received. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Important statement here. He's talking about present-day Jerusalem, present-day to Paul, the Jews that lived then. Now, remember, the end to formal Judaism happened as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and then at 70 A.D., the temples destroyed Jerusalem, is attacked by the Romans, and there's no more means to do the sacrifice. The temple's not there present anymore. That's the actual finality of Jerusalem or Judaism, the way it was thought of here. But at this point, the sacrifices are still going on. The temple's still there, at least by the Jews who are still practicing Judaism. And he's saying, Paul's saying, that this is they're under works. In verse 25, she, that is Hagar in Mount Sinai in Arabia, works. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the Jews of the day. For she is in slavery with her children. They're in slavery because they're in their works. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. And he's not looking ahead to the heavenly Jerusalem that will one day be, but rather that those who are united by faith in Christ and his works, the perfect Jewish one, that's the Jerusalem that's here. Those who are Christians. Those who are God's people. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who is, has a husband. These are words that God uses to comfort Sarah in her despair over Hagar having a child. Notice so far how the allegory breaks down. You see, I have... On the bottom of your outline, two sides. It kind of breaks down the allegory. First, you have the slavery portion. That's what we just read. Slavery comes about because of works. Man's effort to do something of his own initiative in the flesh. Hagar is this representative slave woman. Ishmael, born according to the flesh. The old covenant, particularly misapplied. That is, they trusted in carrying out these obedient acts as, um, as merit before God. Earthly Jerusalem, the Jews of, of that day who trusted in their works, their performance. Judaism in general thinks that it's justified by its works or by something inherent to themselves. This is religion of the flesh, in the flesh. And he's presenting this to the people that they might recognize which side they're on. Well, let's continue the allegory, starting at verse 28, as we see Paul apply this allegory to us. Starting at verse 28. Now you brothers, so he's speaking now to those who he considered brothers, professing faith in Christ, based on what has gone before in Galatians. The definition of one who is a Christian, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. Yet not us, but Christ lives in us. So he says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him 
who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. It is a, a side note, but a worthy one to mention, that whenever we act out of the flesh, when we act by our own will, we cause strife that will go on after. And Ishmael and Isaac to this day are fighting. And it was born out of man's initiative. His effort to do something that God told him to wait on. And in a micro sense, how many things do we force instead of waiting upon God? And what usually happens when we force it? Long time of various fallout that occurs because of such decisions made in such a way. But look at 30. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, verse 30 would have sent chills up the spine of any Jewish listener. Because what Paul does is he uses Genesis 21.10, which is a, a reference to Sarah being comforted. And it, it's really a reference to the fact that God has chosen Sarah's child in the mind of the Jewish person, Jewish people, and Gentiles, by connection, are then rejected. So Paul takes the same verse and he uses it against the Judaizers by saying that you who are slave to the law by works, you are rejected regardless of your ethnicity. So the idea of a Jewish person being told that they're slaves and that this verse is used to prove it would have been very, very confrontational to say the least. Slaves? Never, they would have said. Rejected by God, never were God's people. Well, look at how the allegory breaks down now on the side of freedom. Which is wrought by the Spirit, God's initiative. Isaac didn't choose to be the promised child. God made him such. Sarah, the free woman, different legal status than Hagar. Same fathers, but mothers giving birth to these children grant different legal status. Isaac was born through promise. The gracious new covenant, the ultimate picture of fulfillment as Christ comes, and the picture of the promised one coming, heavenly Jerusalem, that is the citizenship of God's people, is, is a heavenly citizenship, those united to Christ by faith, Christianity, justified by faith in Christ. That's the difference. Whereas Judaism is a religion of justified by works, still to this day, at least a mixture in a mixture we know from the beginning of Galatians is no gospel at all. In the spirit, this is freedom given, whereas the bondage is in the flesh. You see the two different parts of this allegory. For all the difficulty presented, there is a clear picture that there are two mothers, there are two sons, there are two covenants, two cities, two origins. The flesh and the spirit, to which of these do you belong? Again, is the question. Then after you be asked for us to know what he's saying. Which do you belong? To the flesh, to works? Or to the Spirit? The work of Christ? To help give us clarity, let's turn to John. Turn to John chapter 8. John 8. And we'll close looking at Jesus' words. Jesus confronted this similar question consistently from the Jewish people in his midst. And there was constantly this division among the Jews who followed Jesus. There were those who genuinely believed in him, and there were those who were looking for some kind of social uh, relief from the oppression they were receiving from the Romans. And unfortunately, those who claimed to believe in him 
uh, did not advocate for him, unfortunately, from a human perspective, uh, within the midst of the nation of Israel. And the nation as a whole persecuted Jesus. And so some who believed in him came to him to talk to him about their status with him. And he's very, very confrontational with them because their faith and trust is in themselves, in their lineage, in their ethnicity. And so we come to John 8, verse 31. Follow as I read John 8, 31, as Jesus speaks to such Jews and addresses some of the same things that Paul addresses in Galatians. He says, John writes in John 8, 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So he's saying that true discipleship has to do with relationship to Christ, abiding in his word. Of course, what is his word about himself? So so he's saying that true discipleship, relationship with Christ, rightness with God is based on relationship with Jesus. Verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, Jewish people did not want to hear that they weren't free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, see where their trust is, what they rely upon. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So I would say to you that if you have not committed a sin, this message is not for you. Good response, by the way. I could could feel the response. We're all slaves to sin. We don't break out of slavery by subjecting ourselves to more slavery that we can't keep or get ourselves out of. So he reminds the people who are pompous and trusting in their lineage, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So you ought to be related to the son if you think that you are going to be free. Verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You need to be set free. You're trusting in your lineage. You're trusting in your works. You're trusting in your background, who you're connected to, in Abraham. Guess what? Abraham didn't even trust in himself that way. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father. And this is where he starts to turn it on them. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They're thinking, Abraham. Yeah, that's all right with us. Abraham. We trust in Abraham. We're good with that. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would have been doing the works that Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He believed and it was counted in him as righteousness. And the things he did were a result of the faith that God had given him in himself. Abraham didn't do anything by works. did it by faith. Jesus said, yeah, if he was your father, you'd do what he did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did, he says to the sons of Abraham. You are doing the works your father did. Going back to the covenant of works before, in the reference, they may not be catching yet, but we should not miss it. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. He's speaking of the Gentiles who are born in other ways, in the Ishmaelites who were born in immoral ways with Hagar. He, putting down everyone that's not like them. And then Jesus said to them in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. 
For I came from God and I am here. I am not I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus, like Paul, makes us see clearly there are two camps we can be in. God's, through Christ, he is our father, or in our works, under our father, the devil, who wants to see nothing more than the people go to hell. And as long as you believe in yourself, that's exactly where you will go. Because only Christ can save us. This is the message of Paul. This is the message of Christ. This is indeed the message of the Scriptures. And we must stand firm against legalism in the church that says we can trust in something else to be right with God or any false doctrine of salvation. We must ask God to throw out every trace of legalism in our hearts. We cannot be saved by any other religionist except for what Christianity says. Judaism. Hinduism, Islam, Mormonism, they're all slave religions. That's what they are. Roman Catholicism and liberal Protestantism being in bondage to human regulations. The idea that you can mix God's grace with some things we do. Slavery, that's bondage, that's no gospel at all. Tell me, verse 21, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Let's pray. Father, We repeat with Paul, we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Now the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we especially consider the words Paul says next. We do not nullify the grace that you have given us. For if righteousness were through our works, then Christ died for no purpose. But we know that he died for the purpose of redeeming a people to himself so that you may receive all the glory. Lord, I pray that you'd make us a people who react and respond to the great grace that you've shown us by asking you to help us live in a way that glorifies you. We know we are your children. You will not cast us out. You bought us with a great price. So, Father, now use us. Use us to reach others and to shine forth your great glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.